Servant Leadership Conference this year. Charles, it's lovely to have you here. Thank you. And before we get started, I want to share a little story with you about how you ended up here in the first place. Um, the One of the gentlemen who's running the video camera also happens to be my son, and he is our digital media specialist. And he came to us one day and he said, hey, you know, I listened to this great TED Talk about trust. And so we were coming back from a site visit at this location, and um, our president, Robin Swift, put the TED Talk on, and we listened to your talk about trust and leadership. And that really started a series of conversations about this musical theme of the music of servant leadership. And as we continued down that road, we said, gee, we wonder, maybe we could actually have Charles come and speak. So um, that's exactly what we did. And from the first time we talked to you on the phone, we knew you were the right person for the job. Amazing. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. well, it's been an absolute pleasure being here. Oh, it really good. has. Good. I'm mm. so glad. You never know um, where those TED Talks are going to take you, huh? For sure, absolutely you don't. But look, if, if there's one thing Ted is really good for, it's for launching ideas. And at that time, the idea that I most needed to launch was the para orchestra idea. Uh -huh. And that was an amazing way of just getting it airborne, you know, because you just win so many friends in so many different parts of the world if an idea resonates with them. And that one certainly did. So it was a great starting point for yes. that, that whole mission. And, and we'll, we'll talk more about that because I've got some questions around that. But just overall, after, after hearing you share with us today, you have, to my way of thinking anyway, a much bigger mission and purpose overall in what you do. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, just being a conductor is magnificent enough, but I suspect there's more to it for you. There's a huge amount more to it for me. Uh, I mean, of course, making music on a daily basis and being paid perfectly well to do so is a great gift. I would be the first <laughs> yeah. person to claim that. However, if it was just music that existed in a bubble or in isolation as a kind of beautiful kind of lifestyle accessory for people, that wouldn't be enough for me. Music is a reflection of humanity. It is also the most universal language we have. There's no question it goes beyond any dialect or tongue that music speaks to people in every corner of the planet in similar ways. You know, it just has a kind of fundamental truth about it which people read and discern and understand. So if it is this universal language and if it does have this kind of completely universal property to it, then it's an amazing vehicle or agent for change. Mm to get people to think differently, to bring people together when they hate each other, to cross divides of, by dint of religion or ethnicity or politics. Um, and goodness knows, in this funny, fractured world in which we live now, I believe we need music more than we ever have. Very interesting in, in, in my country, in the UK, that there is one industry which is on absolutely the kind of seemingly endless rise, and that's the festival industry. So that more and more and more there are these big outdoor festivals cropping yes. up across the UK. And remember, the UK is a country not known for its good weather. Yeah. So you've got people 
hundreds of thousands of people who will stop at nothing to be in a muddy field with hundreds of thousands of other people collectively witnessing music, engaging, embracing, singing along to, wrapping their hearts and their lungs around, around great music making. So there's something uh, almost spiritual about it. It's, it's feeding a very deep and craven need in, in humanity's soul at the moment. So I think it's a very important time to be making music and it's a wonderful time to be using music as an agent for change. Yes, yes. And so what we saw today was you come and work with musicians who are from here in San Diego and they've never seen you before, perhaps, except maybe on, on video or something like that. How do you approach that? from the standpoint of building, because what you had there was a team, very definitely. How do you approach that? How do you, how do you create that environment where they can be a team? Well, it's a very interesting question you ask, and of course, I suppose this is where my particular job is slightly different from other people who work in leadership of one sort or another, in that my team is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. Last week I was with an orchestra in Norway, the week before I was with an orchestra in Copenhagen, week before that was an orchestra in wherever it was, you know. So I'm constantly meeting new teams, new constellations of humanity. And the one lesson that I've learned, the only thing that makes it possible and makes it successful each new meeting, is if I've got a really healthy and, 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 and warm and affirmative sense of self-trust and self-love. If I believe that I have value, that I can bring value, that I have something uniquely important to share. And remember, I don't mean that makes me better or bigger than anyone else. Mm. I'm just different from everyone else because we are all different. That's the whole joyous reality of humanity. No two people are identical. So two, any two conductors who are worth the time of day will bring different qualities to every piece of music that they conduct, just as every member of every orchestra will bring slightly different qualities. Yes. So if I have an innate sense of the value of the qualities I'm going to bring, and I walk into a situation such as with these musicians here in San Diego, they can already see that I have purpose and that I have clarity in what I am trying to do. And that would immediately cause a kind of spark of connectivity between mm. us. Because they also, hopefully, have self-trust and self-belief and, and a sense of value in what they do. So already we're running before we even crawled. You know, we've already we've got a kind of a point of commonality that we're all secure within ourselves and therefore we can trust each other. Because if you don't trust yourself, you sure as hell can't trust anyone else. Yeah. So if I bring that quality into a room with a bunch of other people who've also brought that quality into the room, we can move mountains. And, and what do you do about the person that maybe is the outlier? We call them sometimes little foxes, little in, foxes our, in our work. You, you. They're beautiful. Mm. They yeah. appear to be on yeah. board. But actually... They're but not. They're, they're pulling not. in a different direction. Right. But of course, that's more difficult to do in a musical ensemble. If you're the one voice which is kind of pulling against the collective tide, you can't really do that for terribly long because you just feel too much like the odd one out. Mm. And that's not a very nice feeling. I mean, orchestral musicians are very uh, loyal to each other. They wouldn't immediately all be staring at the clarinetist because he seems to be playing in a different style from the rest of them. But even so, there's an unspoken, you know, uh, an unspoken acknowledgement that that indeed is happening. Yeah. And 
he will very quickly, he or she will very quickly realize that actually in order to feel some sense of value and fulfillment for themselves, they need to find a way of embracing what's around them or showing a new way which the rest of, the, the rest of us then go, oh, wow, yeah, we need to go in that direction. So it may be a good thing. And I think um, rogue elements in an organization always add value. Mm. It's very rare that actually they cause you know, uh, fissures or, or, or fragmentation. Invariably, partly what they do is to show new possibilities, which then uh, catalyzes new ideas in the rest of us, or they just kind of gently, slowly calm down and kind of get into the swim with everyone else. So I think it's a win-win, quite honestly. Yeah. So um, you also spoke today about coming into the new situation, and you being the conductor, I got the sense that many times the orchestra feels that you are the enemy. In other words, they're taking that attitude right away that you're the enemy. What do you personally do to sort of deal with that? Okay, so the most, single most important thing I've learned to do in that situation is not to show any kind of, not in any way to appear to be unsettled by that. I don't mean you put up some kind of falsely brave facade, but no, you just get on with the business that you're there to do. No, never mind, there's a few kind of moaners over there. Just get on with what you've got to do. Show the clarity of your purpose. Show that you absolutely have value to bring to the situation. And very quickly, those naysayers will dry up. And do you use humour? Your humour? Oh, yeah, because life is all about laughter. I think, you know, laughter, singing, crying... <laughs> These are all massively important aspects of who we are and what we are and, and how we flourish rather than get stuck. You know, I feel very sad that in my culture it's so hard for men to cry, for instance. Mm. I mean, crying is such a healthy thing, isn't it? So, and no one on the planet feels worse after they've cried. Crying makes you feel better. Why should it be such an issue? I mean, I went to a boarding school where you practically got beaten if you showed weakness like mm. that, you know, as a boy. Mm -hmm. So for years, uh, it was like it had been kind of, I was blocked up. And it's only as an adult that I've relearned that most fundamental gift of expression and release, which is to cry sometimes. So now I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd be right up my alley because I'm known for that in our company. Yes, well, good on absolutely. You. I think it's fantastic. Absolutely. Well, that's a gift that you have to impart, and more people should learn it. <laughs> so, if I say to you the phrase servant leadership, what does that mean to you? That means the, 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 that's the essence of what good leadership is about, which is about listening, which is about creating an environment where everyone feels lifted up, emboldened, empowered, valued, respected, loved, so that they can go beyond what they're expected to be able to do or say or achieve or imagine. That they can start to work at a higher level and, and become supersonic. And that's what servant leadership is. It's about creating environments, creating a platform in which someone can go boom. And then you all benefit. It's not like you're kind of like grubbing around on the floor trying to sort of wipe people's feet. You are doing some of that because partly that makes you feel great. You know, any leader that empowers his or her team so that they shine with a kind of incandescence gets a huge amount of selfish pleasure out of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not a one-way street. It's like a look what I've achieved. Yeah in equipping people, inspiring people. Exactly, and it's the same if you're a parent and you have children. If you can instill in them the fundamentally important kind of human characteristic, which is about loving others and supporting others and lifting others up, 
And that that's, remember, is it's, it's constantly ebbing and flowing. So one child is lifting up another child, supporting them, being big for them, and then a minute later it's swapped around, it's the other way around. So, you know, this, this idea of leader and team, it's never quite like that. It's more like we're all in a circle. We all have moments where we need to shine and moments when we need to step back and let others shine. And be a follower, yeah. You also gave us a, a model for um, improvisation. And I found it very interesting to draw the parallel between musical improvisation and the business environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, improvisation is a really interesting thing. It's such a natural behavior, or it should be. But again, because of the slightly stultified cultures that we all live in, <laughs> we're terribly frightened that somehow what we do spontaneously might not be seen to be the right thing. We might have ire or ridicule rain down on our heads. Oh, you fool, what did you go and do that for? Now, again, if you've got the dynamic in your team right, no one should ever feel like that. However outlandish or out of the box their sudden thought might be, it should still be seen as a catalyst which can lead to something else. It should still be a sense of the freedom and the generosity around you that you can come out with the most outlandish thing and that nothing is ever going to be a negative. So I think improvisation is a fundamentally important thing that we need to relearn. And of course, as I said in my talk, I've learned this more than anything else from the musicians with disability with whom I work. Mm. Because if you use a wheelchair or you, you can't hear or whatever physical or, or, or indeed mental impairment you may have, you probably are less inclined to sweat the small stuff. You don't really care about the little petty issues of ego and, and, and insecurity, which unfortunately uh, taint the rest of us an awful yes. lot of the time, yes. get in the way, yeah. you know. Um, so improvisation for musicians with disability with whom I work is a natural, completely uncomplicated outpouring of ideas. And it starts immediately like a tap, you just switch it straight on. Whereas in the normal able-bodied world, as it were, you turn on the tap and you have to wait about an hour for anything to drip out of it. Yeah. And it takes a while and it's all sludgy and brown, you know? And it takes an awfully long time for there to be a nice flow. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's all about creating an environment where everyone feels valued and there is a sense of generosity and love in the environment, in the space which means that everyone and anyone can then be themselves and they will shine brighter than the brightest thing, if yeah. that is the case. We, we teach um, the concept of adding value to others. It's one of nine behaviors, actually, that we teach in our servant leadership work. And that adding value to others really is about every time I come into the room or I come into an encounter with someone, how do I add value to them, right? Robert Greenleaf, who was one of the founders of the modern servant leadership movement said, you know, the big question is, are people better off after coming in contact with you? And so those can be very small things or huge things. So true. And look, my, my response to that is, Again, you know, if you, you have innate faith in yourself, self-love, self-respect, I think you know that you will always add value wherever you go, even though very often that added value will be by doing virtually nothing at all. Mm. It's so interesting, I find, with different orchestras with whom I work, that so often the least thing I do has the maximum useful impact, mm. if you sort of mean. that. It's so often not about big gesture and about 
driving things. It's about just letting things happen. You know? Again, it's trust. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, because there's an edge you're walking there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because it's that, that I'd made that analogy about conducting, be like holding a small bird in your hand, and, and if you hold it too tightly, you just squash it, and if you hold it too loosely, it just flies away. It's that sweet spot between those mm -hmm. two extremes. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the biggest challenge you have in your leadership right now, in your, in your journey through that leadership world? What is my biggest challenge? Um, you know, I don't, I don't really feel I've got any challenges at the moment, which sounds like a dreadfully arrogant thing to say, but I'm just very, I feel I'm in a groove now. I've worked through so much of my own personal baggage. I had so, so many years of just not believing in myself, not uh -huh. trusting myself, feeling like a fraud, feeling like I got there by accident, that uh, somehow or other I'd pulled the wool over enough people's eyes. Syndrome. Yes, exactly, that it was by canny marketing or speak that I got to do this, got to do that, got to do the other. And no matter how many times I was getting all this positive reflection back from people saying, wow, that was amazing. Yeah, we'd really like you to come again. I'm thinking, oh, you don't really mean that. You're just lying. You know, the whole thing is made up. You know, it's taken me, you know, I'm 50 now. It's taken me a long time to get to this place where I genuinely love every single piece of work that I do. I love all the musicians who do my work and indeed people who aren't musicians. I just get enormous satisfaction from knocking around with other human beings. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So what, if you had to think of one project right now, what are you most passionate about right now that you'd like to share with everyone? Well, I suppose of all the myriad of different projects that I'm involved in, um, the single sort of core proposition which remains most passionately important to me is the issue of disability in music, the issue of the British Parrot Orchestra. Um, that has started, it's gone amazingly well. The orchestra is flourishing and touring around the world and making waves wherever it goes and changing people's perspectives wherever it goes. But it still feels like an inordinately tall mountain mm. and we are still at base camp. Yeah. You know, because the, the problems which inhibit disability, disabled people from making music in great orchestras and other musical institutions around the world, the problems are so profound and grassroots. Whether you're talking about educational systems that haven't even been invented yet, whether you're talking about finding money to bring a disabled musician together with the technology they need to make music, whether it's about getting conservatoires to change their thinking so that actually they start to create modules and create situations that can welcome disabled musicians into their fold, whether you're talking about concert halls that don't even have a stage you can get onto if you use a wheelchair. Yeah. I mean, the problems are so manifold and fundamental that at times I just I feel like a fish who's been thrown out of the sea and is gasping for air. Because however much we do, however many waves we make, there's still an awfully long journey to go in changing people's hearts and minds. And, you know, people will go so far with you. I mean, of course, people's first reaction is one of sympathy, one of empathy. They want to help, they want to do the right thing. But people are people and they're busy with other things, they have other preoccupations. They can go so far with the idea and then they fall away. Mm -hmm. You know, when the Paralympics happened in London, I thought, this is the game-changing moment. I thought, this is suddenly a new watershed where no one will have the same negative attitudes towards disability again. Well, six months after the event, Already I found about half the people who had been picking up the phone to me were not picking up the phone anymore 
not because they're bad people, because their attention has shifted somewhere else. Yeah. There are so many problems in the world. Disability is one of a myriad. So it's keeping people's eye and mind and heart on task is challenging. Yes. As uh, well as yours. Well, I'm a fighter. From, from the standpoint of, you know, when you see that negative side, pointing yourself back to what have we accomplished. Yes, I, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm quite good on not losing sight of that. I mean, don't get me wrong, I have my dark days. <laughs> yeah. But I'm a fighter, naturally yeah. a fighter, and I will never give up with this particular project. I will continue to do everything I can to make the world adjust its thinking on this fundamental issue because it would be so stupid not to. And if people want to learn more about that movement? Well, very simply, of course, they can go to the website. It's simply paraorchestra.com. Uh, and um, yeah, please, anyone who wants to get in touch and has ideas and, and support to offer us, because goodness me, it, it sucks a lot of oxygen out of the air. The power orchestra needs every bit of help it can get. So yeah, I mean, thanks to Ted and thanks to this platform that you've so graciously given me and all the other situations I found myself in, we are spreading the word. We are establishing a global network of partners and friends. But we always need more, we're always hungry for more, and we have got a long way to go. Charles, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your heart as well as your mind. <laughs> um, I, you know, people were touched, and that's really special. So thank you very much. You're more than welcome. We hope you enjoyed this conversation, and we encourage you to learn more about servant leadership and the services of the Servant Leadership Institute by visiting our website at www.servantleadershipinstitute.com. We're excited to announce the release of our latest publication, The Servant Leadership Journal, an 18-week journey to transform you and your organization, written by our founder and CEO, Art Barter. The book is available now on Amazon or our website. And save the date for our 2018 Servant Leadership Conference, February 19th and 20th in San Diego, California. Thanks for listening and allowing us to add value to your day.